What's happening in Israel can be very hard to talk about, especially on college campuses. Universities are having a tough time right now, but they also have what they need to do this right. Hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson, and the Nightlight is on. Tonight on the show, who should debate and who should moderate? The University of California released a strongly worded statement after Hamas attacked Israel. That led to a strongly worded statement from a faculty group urging solidarity with Palestinians. And that led to, yep, you guessed it, from a university leader who pushed back hard. This is going nowhere. But it does not have to keep getting worse. I believe universities are uniquely capable of handling these debates if the right people do the talking. Today's episode comes from this week's live stream. Watch live or anytime on Twitch at Nightlight Show, on YouTube at The Nightlight Show, on Facebook at Joshua Listening, and you can always email me, joshua at nightlightshow.com. Let me get into some of what I wanted to talk with you about today. One of the challenges of this is figuring out what I could actually say something useful and interesting on. The big story in the world right now is the war in Israel. Israel is pushing deeper into Gaza. The airstrikes and ground incursions appear to be the deepest that they have been thus far in the war. There's also a border crossing, right, where Israel meets Egypt in the city of Rafah. There are humanitarian supplies that are slowly, slowly, slowly beginning to work their way through. By all accounts, the flow of supplies is increasing little by little, where on day one, there were maybe a dozen, few dozen trucks. And now there are about 100 trucks going across the border filled with different supplies. President Biden is pushing for Israel to allow humanitarian pauses to get civilians out and get aid in. We know there are American civilians that are still making their way out of the region. Karen Bass, who's the mayor of Los Angeles, just put out a statement yesterday saying that someone from there just got out of the region. So we know there are still Americans trying to get out, although some have already been able to fly out anyway. The Israeli Defense Forces have made it clear that they don't want to allow an open passage because they're concerned that some Hamas militants might be able to escape or maybe even move around and that they could get more supplies in to continue their attack against Israel. So that's kind of a tense situation on the ground. The administration, the Biden administration, has also been really careful about not calling for a ceasefire. And depending on the experts that you talk to, they would say that a ceasefire would just allow Hamas to reinforce its armament. So a, a ceasefire would basically be kind of like a timeout for Hamas to catch its breath. I guess I understand the military strategy of that, and I understand diplomatically why the administration is not using that word ceasefire, but rather a humanitarian pause. The trick of all of that is coordinating it, right? Getting the Israeli Defense Forces, number one, to agree to that, two, to designate who the humanitarian organizations are, and three, to work out the timing in a way that still makes sense for them militarily. So I get why it's so difficult. The bigger difficulty, I think, is in the way that we talk about this here in the U.S., few things I wanted to share with you. Number one, I want to shout out something from public radio, which you may already know. And it's a show called On the Media, which has been produced by WNYC in New York for a long, long time. 
When big stories like this happen, they put out something called a breaking news guide, which just walks you through the way to watch the story. There has been a disgusting rise in misinformation and disinformation after the war in Israel began, after Hamas attacked on October 7th. This always happens with big stories in social media. Social networks have never really been effective partners with us, the public, in terms of making sure that we are not fed an endless stream of BS at a time when we have to have good information. But it's kind of what we've got right now because some social networks are actually very useful in a time like this. On the Media put out a really good breaking news guide to help you walk your way through the coverage of the war in Israel. Take a look at some of what they have in terms of the way that we view this. Give me just a moment. There we go. See, I'm still learning the software. Had another window open and it popped right up. That's okay. This is what On the Media is suggesting. This is their Israel and Gaza edition of their Breaking News Consumers Handbook. You can find this at onthemedia.org, and I can also make the link available to you as well. First of all, rule number one or tip number one, headlines are obscured by the fog of war. Don't swallow them without chewing. Even the best news outlets will blow it. Pause on that right there. We know, oh, people only read the headlines. If we know that that's a tendency, please be mindful of that in yourself. Be very careful with just making your decisions about this war based on the quick headlines that you see. You should never swallow information without chewing it over. That's good general guidance. It's so easy to make quick, big blanket decisions about something this complicated. Just take a breath, please. Give yourself the permission to not have to decide everything all at once. Remember, you do have the option of not having an opinion about everything you see. And I think chewing over the information before you swallow it, before you integrate it and accept it as part of your belief system is vital, especially now that it's so hard to parse fact from fiction. Tip number two, avoid the obvious spreaders of hogwash by noting these red flags. One, incessant posts. Pause on that one. I agree with that. I do think some people, maybe people you know, are posting and posting and posting and posting because they think it's an act of solidarity with whomever they are most concerned with in this conflict. So I get that sometimes people will just keep posting and posting and posting because they don't feel heard. Having said that, I'm not sure I want to let those people drive my public opinion either. If you're so emotional, if you're so worked up about this that you can't form your thoughts cogently and clearly I may want to validate you so that you know, hey, man, I hear you. I see you. Girl, I got you. I, I, Yes, I feel you. I just don't know if I want to rely on you for guidance or analysis or expertise. So I, I would back away from those posts somewhat. I don't know if I would avoid them or ignore them depending on where they come from. But I understand what on the media is getting at. Avoid posts that lean into emotionally charged content. Hell Yes. The war is emotional enough. I don't need you to make me angrier. True, I agree with that. Posts that provide no link to the original source. Yes, granted, unless they come from a mainstream news organization, and I know we've got feelings about mainstream media, for sure, and we can talk about that another time. But if you have a human being on the ground who's willing to put their name on the report, I put a lot more credence in that 
than someone who just kind of writes something and doesn't provide any way for me to know that they're not lying to me, quite frankly. Like, how do I know that you know? But I, I would I would agree with that as well. And also avoid posts that use the language of breaking news without being affiliated with a news outlet. I get that too. I think that part of what I struggle with with some people is the way that they use the phrase breaking news. Now, granted, we, because we call everything breaking news, CNN and MSNBC and Fox News use that. Well, Fox News uses Fox News Alert. <laughs> That's their thing. But we have overused the phrase breaking news. Personally, I believe that if you have time to write a script around it, it's not breaking. You are in breaking news mode when you are saying what you're getting as you're confirming it. But if you had time to write something out, to type it, edit it, put it all together, that and it happened hours before, maybe it's a developing story, maybe it's new details, I would use the phrase breaking news very, very cautiously, especially with an ongoing story like a war. Instead of putting breaking news at the top of the screen, just put war in Israel. Like we know it's an ongoing story. We know it's a big deal. Breaking news is the equivalent of going, hey, 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 pay attention right now. That's where that should be used. Mainstream news organizations need to redefine that, my opinion. But online, I would also be cautious of people who overuse that phrase. Tip number three, check the attribution and be careful of the sources you're pulling from. Never repost screenshots. They are easily faked. Very, very true please avoid reposting screenshots. Even if the image is real, the attribution might not be real. All of that context is important. And if people are just like, this is a picture of a scene from Rafa and all oh, the human uh, the tragedy. And if it's just a naked photograph with nothing else, avoid it. I, definitely avoid it. Even if it comes from a news organization, we need to see that. We need the link. Just avoid it. Four, know your platforms. This I found very useful. Telegram is a rich source of videos and photos in the conflict. Now, unless you actually like know what Telegram channels to follow, I'm not sure how useful this tip is. Telegram is kind of a point-to-point -point encrypted messaging app. It's not like Twitter, where you can just like find people randomly through Telegram. You sort of have to know where to look. That's partly why Telegram is useful. The war in Ukraine has shown how very powerful Telegram can be, especially and in including with Russian commentators and with people on the ground using Telegram in their various points of view on that war. Doesn't mean that everything you see on Telegram is credible. It just means that it is a far more curated space for getting information. So Telegram kind of exists in a, in a unique niche within social media. Instagram is heavily used in Gaza and the West Bank. X, the app formerly known as Twitter, is mostly just an aggregator of material posted elsewhere. Also true. I think that Instagram can be useful, but again, you want to be thoughtful about how you go through this. Can I ask you from behind the scenes of news gathering that I don't think a lot of people know? I wish more people knew this. We talked about this when I was at NBC, and I hope they're still talking about it now that I'm not there. I'm pretty sure that they, that they are. But anyway, inside news organizations like NBC News, there is a social news gathering team. Their whole job is to connect the organization to the outside world. So if a story starts to go viral online, they would, first of all, be the ones to notice it. And then they would go through a process of reporting out that post. So we figured out there are certain ways that you can verify whether or not a post is real or not. 
And they will also, this is another one, I don't think people realize that you need to do this, they will contact the person who made the post and say, hey, this is Cecil such and such from NBC News. I saw you posted from the scene of this flooding. Did you take this picture yourself? And they'll get into a conversation with them. And then they'll ask, may we have the rights to use this picture? Now, there's very legalistic language. May, we, may NBC Universal and all its properties and platforms have the, the, the irrevocable perpetual right to use this in all platforms now until the end of time, hear it forever and ever, amen. But they will ask for permission. And the reason they do that is because when we say it, we own it, right? I can't blame it on somebody else anymore. I have to own the fact that I made the decision to put something out into the world that's bull. And that means it's my responsibility to fix it if it turns out to be false. But Josh, wait a minute. If you didn't lie to me, why do you have to correct the lie? Because I amplified it. I'm part of making that I think it was, well, it's been attributed to Mark Twain, but that old quote, true, about a lie making it halfway around the world before the truth can put on its shoes. I don't want to give the lie the caffeine it needs to run faster. So there's a team of people whose whole job is to get into those things, figure out what to do about them, and then make the editorial decision of whether or not to share it. So when you go through a news organization, an actual news organization, someone has vetted the post, whether it's an organization like Storyful, whose whole job is doing that, or whether it's that particular network, they, if they're a reputable network, and the big names you know, most likely are, have these teams on, on hand, they've done the work. Who's done the work in the post to make sure that it's shareable, that it's worth sharing? Just something to consider when you see you know, something particularly on the networks of NBC. I can vouch for that because that's where I worked. And I know how good the social news gathering teams are. They are available round the clock, 24 seven. I could message them on Slack and I would get a message back within 15 minutes tops, more likely five to 10, because that's their whole job. Especially during a breaking news situation, that's all that they do is to make sure, is this picture taken from somewhere else? Let's do a reverse image search and see if we can find this image somewhere else. Okay, the background of that picture, what are those buildings in the background behind the scene where this standoff is happening between police and protesters? Let's map that and see if we can get a Google street view of that building and see if it matches up with the caption of where this person claims the picture comes from. And when did this happen? Did this happen now or are they lifting a picture from a past conflict? Let's figure, that's their job. That's all they do, is to make sure that as best we can tell it, that the content you're getting online is real. You can't believe everything you see online, but you don't have to. Because at some organizations, there are people whose job it is not to believe it until they can prove it, until they can trust it. So it's vital that you just take a split second and ask yourself, how do they know this? How do I know that they know what they claim that they know? It'll save you a lot of headache. It'll save you a lot of headache. It definitely saved me headache doing this work. Sarah, yes, I agree. Sarah says, thank you. Local news starts every newscast with breaking news. It makes me ignore it. Me too. It gets a little bit tiresome sometimes to watch the way that some local news organizations play fast and loose with this. Uh, it's 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 a little silly. Sometimes it gets a little bit silly. Back to the list. 
Know your platforms. Number five, photos and videos of war victims are almost never staged by crisis actors, though disinfo accounts, disinformation accounts often pass off old, unrelated war images as new, but they're rarely fake. This is a hard bit of nuance, I think, for some people to accept, but it's true. A lot of the images of war that you see, we saw this a lot during a number of the conflicts in Afghanistan, some of the uh, terror attacks that have happened in the last, well, in the in our post 9-11 world, where it looks like it's one. And in some of the protests between police and law enforcement reform advocates after the murder of George Floyd, there's been a lot of really screwy imagery that shows up. That is a real picture, but it's not really showing what it claims to show. Just another way that disinformation actors can lie to you online. They're taking a real thing and putting false information around it, and so they create a false implication of the information. Tip number six, learn about the easily accessible tools you can use to assist verification, but even the pros get fooled. This work isn't easy, but it's important. On the media talks more about this, but one of the tools that I really, really love is PolitiFact. PolitiFact does a very good job of saying, we have reported this out and we rate this to be true, mostly true, half true, mostly false, false or pants on fire, meaning it's just complete bunk. But there are also other tools that you can use as well. I would start with PolitiFact. Also, the AP, the Associated Press, does a column every week, roughly every week, called AP Fact Check, where they just go through some of the online stupidity that they've seen and say, here are the top you know, lies that we saw online of things that did not happen this week. And they put it out all the time. And they're at just apnews.com. There are all kinds of sources where people can say, I looked into that and it didn't hold up. Whether you believe it or not is up to you. But the idea that, oh, we can't trust anything anymore. Nobody's telling us the truth. Where do we go to get the truth? You could still go to the same place as you went. You know, I worked on public radio for a very long time. They're still doing their best to report the truth as best they know it. I work for MSNBC and NBC News. I know people feel a way about MSNBC and about mainstream media, but I worked with some really smart people. Now, granted, there's always done in improving how we fact check information. I, I feel bad for anyone who's ever had the misfortune of having me be their editor because I am a monster. But every organization is going to need some help doing fact checking, doing editing, clarifying things, making them simpler, making them sharper. I was amazed at how much the need for basic grammar instruction still exists and also basic writing composition instruction still exists, including among people who work in news. And I'm not going to name any names or put anybody out there, but just suffice it to say that I would rigorously go over scripts aggressively and make sure that we're not only saying something that is true, but that is honest, but that what we're saying is fair, that what we're saying is clear, and that it's conversational. I used to pound my teams, write the way people talk. Just say it. Don't make it all complex and word salad-ish. Just tell me. You just saw the story. What happened? Okay, good. That thing you just said to me, write that the exact same way you just verbalized it and edit from there. 
Obviously, you're going to remove the so um, like you knows in the way that you said it, but you understand what I'm saying. Sometimes we get so caught up in making highfalutin language about a big story that we forget to just relay it in as few words as possible. The more words you need, then there's more words for me to get lost in. It's easier for me to get confused if you just make it verbose. And this is coming from someone who is very verbose normally. <laughs> the fewer words, the better. And it's a challenge. It is absolutely a challenge. And I hear Nora, I'm just going to throw in a comment from Nora. Nora writes, PolitiFact leans markedly left, so you have to allow for confirmation bias. Well, PolitiFact is part of, I'm just trying to think about the, the background of PolitiFact. PolitiFact is part of a group called the Pointer Institute, which is a nonprofit school for journalists in St. Petersburg, Florida. I think the nice thing about PolitiFact, and even some of the other fact-checking organizations, is that, well, I'll put it to you this way. If a conservative tells me it's raining outside, that doesn't mean I should not trust it. It does, however, mean I can check the weather. It's something that I can still find a way to build truth in. It doesn't mean that you ignore somebody's background and biases. I guess I've never perceived PolitiFact as leaning markedly left, but I'm not going to fight you on that. Like if that's if that's how you see it, that's that's cool. And you may be right. You may be seeing something that I'm missing for whatever. I may have a blind spot for that. But I think the nice thing is that because you show your work or because they show their work, it allows me to at least have something to go on and say, okay, I may not agree with your implication. I may not agree with the interpretation of the information, but at least I understand how you got to that interpretation. That's something I can put a little bit more credence in. But I, I, I won't quarrel with you about their political leaning. You might be seeing something that I'm missing. Let me get back to the list. I think one more item on the list. Yes. Item number seven, the information pool has never been so polluted. Don't make it worse. Worse. Pause before you post. What you do matters. Let's camp out on that for a second. Actually, I'm not even going to camp out on it because you, you already know. You know what I'm going to say. You already know what I'm going to say. Pause before you post. Please, please, please. Here is my best tool as a writer. Ready? I'm going to demonstrate it for you now. Get ready. Here it comes. Did you catch that? That was it. Just to take a breath. Just to take a breath. Turn away from it. Come back to it. Review what you wrote. Review what you thought. Review what you were about to post. Review what you were about to tweet. Review what you were about to share on Instagram. Review it before you put it out there. Just take a breath. One of the things that is so difficult about this current conflict is that it feels like no one's breathing. It feels like everyone's just mad all the time. And understandably so. I'm not quarreling with people's feelings about this conflict or about the attack or Hamas's ground incursion and, and some of the atrocities that they have committed. I think people are upset for reasonable reasons. The trick is how you intercept that sense of upset to do some good, to do something that's valuable. And that gets me into my next topic. I'm gonna take about two minutes to catch my breath. When we come back, I'm going to tell you about a controversy at the University of California system, my beloved UC system, regarding the way that we grownups talk around younger people about the conflict in Israel. There's a conflict that's been emerging between the Ethnic Studies Department and one of the regents of UC. 
each going at the other about their perspectives on Israel, the Palestinian cause, and the way that America should be engaging in this. I understand where they're coming from. I think they're both going about this the wrong way, but I do see a solution. I think there are people around them who might help. I'll get to that in about two minutes. Stay close. Podcasting is pleasant, but broadcasting is best. Starting the Night Light showed me how much I miss live interaction, connecting with you in real time. To me, it's more fun, exciting, and meaningful. That's why the Night Light is expanding to live streaming. Today's youth have revolutionized broadcasting, streaming themselves playing video games or just being silly. Well, consider me a revolutionary. America needs more spaces to connect about the issues that matter, programs that are smart, kind, and fun. No one needs to wait for permission. Not anymore. I can do it myself, but only if you help out. So follow me on YouTube, Facebook, or Twitch to get updates on my next live streams. I'm experimenting with different times of day, and some will be spontaneous, so keep an eye out for updates. I'm still on Facebook, at Joshua Listening. Now I'm on Twitch at Nightlight Show, and I'm on YouTube at The Nightlight Show. Join me live on any platform to share your questions and thoughts in the chat. Watch on demand anytime, or catch the highlights here on my podcast. Let's take this to the next level and make the nightlight shine brighter than ever. This is The Nightlight. I'm Joshua Johnson. Good to be back with you today on our live stream. Let me get back to the war in Israel. There was a conflict. There's been a conflict going in the last few weeks at the University of California. It's not a unique conflict. It's the kind of thing that's playing out at colleges and universities all across the country. There have been a number of very worrisome incidents here in the U.S., related to, number one, anti-Semitism. The state of New York is going to be doing a review of its university system to see what it can do to further crack down on and hopefully prevent acts of anti-Semitism at state universities. There have been a number of law firms who've put out statements calling on every law school to do what they can and every university to do what they can to root out anti-Semitism on their campuses, it has really been very, very scary, I think, at times, for not only Jewish students, but also Palestinians and Palestinian Americans. There was the case of that man up in the Chicago area who killed a six-year-old boy and injured the boy's mother just simply because they're Palestinian. Uh, he is in custody, forgive me, his name escapes me, but th th there have been a number of incidents across the country right now that have gotten very, very worrisome. One of them, I think, that we can do something about has to do with the conversations on college campuses. We had a few weeks ago, Professor Ron Hasner from UC Berkeley, and he talked about the way that he is engaging students on these issues, including students who just don't seem to know much about this issue. So one of the controversies that's popped up in the last few weeks has been at the broader University of California system. There was a statement that was put out 
by UC's chancellor, or by, yeah, by the chair of the Board of Regents, which is the governing body that oversees the entire University of California system, and by UC's president, Dr. Michael Drake. And this came out on October 9th. The Hamas attack on Israel was on Saturday, October 7th. This was the statement they put out on Monday, October 9th. It begins as follows. You can see I've highlighted part of it here. It begins thus. Our hearts are heavy in the face of the horrific attack on Israel over the weekend, which involved the loss of many innocent lives and the abduction of innocent hostages, including children and the elderly. This was an act of terrorism launched on a major Jewish holiday. What should have been a quiet weekend of rest turned into days of unspeakable terror and shock. The violence is sickening and incomprehensible. And as of this moment, and again, this was on October 9th, as of this moment, we still do not know the fate of the hostages. This act deserves and requires our collective condemnation. Now, this seems like a pretty benign sort of you know, boilerplate statement to put out in the days after something like this happens. Oh my God, this is horrific. This is terrible. We're thinking about the, the lives that have been lost. Pretty straightforward. One of the things that I think this conflict has revealed, or maybe re-revealed, is that nothing is ever quite that simple, particularly when we're talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Now, I know that just the fact that I have brought this up has made some of your palms sweat and your teeth clench. Don't worry, I'm not going to lay out my diatribe for what we should do about Israel and the Palestinians. My concern is what we do here as people talking about what happens there. Remember, connection is my area of expertise. After this statement came out, there was another statement that was released by the Ethnic Studies Faculty Council at the University of California. This is a, a group of faculty members across the university system. And they really clap back at the university for its statement. Give me just a minute. I just need to reorient some of the windows on my screen so that I can read this to you clearly. There we go. The statement begins in the strongest possible terms, quote, the UC Ethnic Studies Faculty Council, a diverse statewide body that represents over 300 faculty system-wide, rejects recent UC administrative communications that distort and misrepresent the unfolding genocide of Palestinians in Gaza and thereby contribute to the racist and dehumanizing erasure of Palestinian daily reality. In light of the history of statements by the UC regents and chancellors demonizing the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, the BDS movement, and other forms of Palestinian solidarity, we have no confidence that the UC administration comprehends or respects its obligation to make public statements that demonstrate a full understanding of this historical moment. This is an egregious failure of leadership given the University of California's reputation as one of the world's foremost educational and research institutions, unquote. Further down, here's part of where the argument gets deeper. Well, they say, I'm going to skip down to that second sentence in the next paragraph, quote, it is deeply distressing that the UC, the University of California, and other higher education institutions administrative statements in the last week and a half that irresponsibly wield charges of terrorism and unprovoked aggression have contributed to a climate that has made Palestinian students and community members unsafe, even in their own homes. 
These statements stoke anti-Muslim, anti-Palestinian sentiments, which have resulted, for example, in the stabbing death of a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy and the serious wounding of his mother in Illinois, unquote. That's the attack I told you about. Now, the statement goes on to demand that the university retract basically what it had said. That the university retract its charges of terrorism to uplift the Palestinian freedom struggle and to stand against Israel's war crimes against ethnic cleansing and genocide of the Palestinian people. That's the statement. So, pause right there. Pull it back out. What are they? They're saying, you've mischaracterized this. Your use of the word terrorism contributes to a climate that threatens Palestinians and Palestinian Americans. We need you to pull that back and be more thoughtful about what you're saying in the future. In response to that, and I'm getting to my point, in response to that, one of the regents wrote back, Jay Shores, a major executive at a big talent agency in Hollywood, fired back with a response of his own. And based on the way the response begins, you can tell how he felt about it. He begins, quote, there are absolutely no words to describe how appalling and repugnant I found your October 16th, 2023 letter from the UC Ethnic Studies Faculty Council to the Regents of the University of California. Your letter is rife with falsehoods about Israel and seeks to legitimize and defend the horrific savagery of the Hamas massacre on October 7th. You have asked us further down, Quote, you have, asked us, you have asked for us as a body to retract our charges of terrorism, to uplift the Palestinian freedom struggle, and to stand against Israel's war crimes, against the ethnic cleansing and genocide of the Palestinian people. Let me be clear. I will do everything in my power to never let that happen. Full stop. Our statement of condemnation of the October 7th massacre of Israeli citizens by Hamas was absolutely justified and necessary because terrorism has no place in our world. As human beings, we need to condemn it immediately and forcefully without fear of retribution or that some may be offended, unquote. Now, if you have felt yourself be to either glaze over or pucker, at hearing these dueling statements, you are absolutely not alone. And that's what I wanted to address. I find that both of these statements are problematic. The statement from the Regent and the statement from the Ethnic Studies Council. But they're not problematic because of what they're saying. If there's one thing I've learned over the years, it's rarely what you say. It's always how you say it. And one of my major disappointments with higher education in at least America today, not everywhere, but in many ways, in many places and in many circumstances, is we do a really bad job of modeling civility for young adults. We're just not that good at it. It's very difficult to do. Universities have been riven with divisions over how students protest and how faculty speak their minds. And, and it's toxic. It's a really hard thing to get into, especially because you've got donors who were looking over the university saying, you know, we gave you money, right? You're going to deal with this, right? And depending on what the donors want or don't want or need or don't need or believe or oppose, you can have administrators who are caught in the middle. And it can be very, very hard to navigate. I get that. I empathize with that 100%. Here's what I think everybody in this particular conflict is, is missing. You are here to model for students 
the way that they are to comport themselves as adults, as graduates, as diplomats of the University of California, degree holders of the university. This is a teaching moment. Every moment is a teaching moment. And I worry that the people who should be leading these conversations are not. Here's the trick. And here's why I don't really begrudge them the statements either. And it's because it's something I think you and I do all the time, especially when we're in conflict, right? Your limbic brain kicks in, your cortex shuts off, and you're just like, and all you are is emotion, right? You're just a raw nerve, understandably, for reasonable reasons. My work over these last 20 years has been basically to be the antidote to the raw nerves. But what I learned over the years is the surest way not to calm someone down is to tell them what? What's the one thing you can tell someone who's not calm that will make them even angrier? Right, calm down. Calm down is one of the worst things you can tell someone who's upset. One of the best things you can tell someone who's upset is, what's up? I'm listening. Just listen. I am amazed at how quickly anger dissipates if we'll just listen. I have found when I'm talking to someone, not someone who's ranting, raving, screaming, yelling, and, and just in their emotions. That I probably have to walk away from that. But when someone is just, just mad, and I go, well, what's up? Talk to me. I'm listening. It usually only takes about 30 seconds to calm them down. I mean, you'd be amazed how quick it is. 45 seconds, perhaps a minute. And then once I do that and I can validate to them, okay, I, I got what you're saying. I hear you. I hear you. They calm down almost instantly. It's like a magic trick. You have so many people in this conflict who are so mad and they are screaming so loudly. But I think the reason they're screaming is because they don't think anyone is listening. So what's the fastest way to stop them from screaming? Right. Listen. Someone has to listen. Now, I bet some of you who heard me say that, your first thought was, well, ain't gonna be me. <laughs> and I get that. Go you tell somebody else to go listen to them, I ain't doing it. Okay, that's cool. That's fine. I don't believe it should be everybody's job. I chose to build a career where I did not make a living doing political commentary and punditry. I never liked that. Ever since I've been old enough to vote, I have not wanted to tell people what my politics were, what party you're registering with. None of your beeswax. Leave me alone. Well, who are you voting for for the... I, 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 I. Well, what do you think about this ballot measure? Have you just... Don't. Don't. I don't want to talk about it. That's the way I'm wired. I think that's kind of why I've been so good as a journalist is because I don't want you to know my politics. If you have a guess, if you can infer from the things I say, that's your business, but I really don't care. So for me, it was always easy to be a moderator, right? To be a host. I think that's why I was good at hosting 1A is because I don't need you to know my perspective. I don't want you to know my perspective. I wanna know yours and I get much more mileage out of the results that come from connecting people who thought they could not connect. That's how I'm wired. Everyone's not wired that way. Here's the problem. 
We need more people who are wired that way. Joshua, that sounds very egotistical. We need more people like you to solve this problem. It's just a reflection of how effective it is. I stumbled backwards into my superpower. But there are people who are equipped for this, including at the University of California. So here's what I would like to see. I would like to see these universities that are the sites of all of these huge disagreements and debates enlist their departments that are built for this. For example, UC Berkeley has a department of rhetoric. This is their whole job. Let them help guide some of the conversations. Every university and every college pretty much has a department of philosophy. They can help with this. Aren't they experts in discussing inexplicably complicated issues? What could be more inexplicably complicated on earth than the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Many colleges and universities have departments of communication and journalism whose whole job is to help make complex issues simpler and to show people one another's points of view in ways that are clear and concise and compelling. They could help with this, but you know who I really think could help with this? Law schools. Not because they have the answers, but because they understand standards of evidence and decorum and the competition of ideas. There's a canon of principles that guide the way a trial goes. So if you're really sure that your point of view is the right one and their point of view is the wrong one, then schools of law could, depending on the school, be a helpful place to give students a framework for talking about hard issues. I'm not saying that they should determine who's right. I'm just saying they should be able to hear all those sides without feeling a personal onus on themselves. Granted, everyone comes at this differently. If you are a law professor practicing in the, in the United States and you are Palestinian American, you're going to feel a way about this. Maybe this isn't a project you should take part in because you feel like you can't do justice to it. That's fine. That's a highly principled point of view to say, look, y'all, I know you need this. I'm not the right person. I'll help you find somebody, but I would rather be making the argument than moderating the argument, so I can't help with this. That's perfectly fine. That's a principled point of view. I don't think everyone needs to be a moderator. I know I'm weird. <laughs> I know what I do is not normal. I know it is not normal for me to say, I'm not going to tell you what I think. I just want to hear what you think. Most people are not that way, and that's cool, but someone would be. I know I'm not the only one out of 340 million Americans who's able to do that. Somebody cares enough about these kids to say, hey, 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 back up. You're not going to act like that here. We're going to facilitate this for you. I'm going to help, but you're here to learn and we're here to teach and we're going to govern this in a way that meets the values of this institution and we're not going to let you two beat up on each other. So back up. We're going to facilitate this, but everyone needs to take a breath first. There's got to be someone on campuses that can do that. I would love, ideally, for there to be spaces for students who can make their own points and for students who can connect across their points of view. So if you are firmly on one side of the issue or another, your only outlet should not be protesting. That's unhealthy if that's the only way you can express your feelings. Partly because I think students who are Israeli, 
who are Palestinian, who are Jewish, who are Muslim, need to be able to just vent their pain over this. Anger is almost always in this kind of form behind some kind of pain. And you got a lot of kids on college campuses who are broken over this. They are just becoming adults. They are just gaining agency in the world. They don't know what they're gonna do, but they know they have to live in the world that we are creating for them. And it's really, really scary. How do we help them through it? How do we help them think through it? We have to model it for them. We also, I think, need to be careful about the way we express our points of view as connected to our own point of view. So often we can say things like, for example, and I'm just gonna make up a really basic lame example just to make this benign. You know, chocolate is a better ice cream, ice cream flavor than vanilla, for example. And people should be eating more chocolate ice cream. As opposed to saying, my brother and I, I'm an only child, but again, I'm making this up. My brother and I used to go get chocolate ice cream, you know, every uh, Sunday after church when we rode there with my mom and dad, and it means so much to me, and that's why I think it's better. That's a much more persuasive story. It makes it easier for me to go, oh, that's why you feel the way you feel. That's why I disagree with you, because I don't have your lens on this situation. That's why. Take a listen, if you will, to Ta-Nehisi Coates. He spoke on Democracy Now! a few days ago. And I know Democracy Now! leans very hard to the left, granted. But I think the way that he expressed his thought was really, really useful. He spoke at a Palestinian literary festival over the summer and talked in this interview about his experiences being there, being in these territories, Gaza, the West Bank, and so on. And he related the way he feels about this struggle now to his legacy as an African-American. There's been a significant amount of black solidarity with Palestinians over the years. Angela Davis and beyond that have kind of talked about the, 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 the congruity in the struggles for civil rights here in the US and what Palestinians are going through. This is from his perspective, and I'm not playing this so you'll agree with it. I'm playing this as a way to exemplify structurally how I think you make a personal argument in a way that keeps it personal. Depersonalizing it, I think, is the problem. Personalizing it, going to that vulnerable place, is what makes it powerful. Here's what Ta-Nehisi Coates said. Martin Luther King uh, dedicated his life to the fight against segregation. Israel's a segregated society. The occupied territories are segregated. The Jews are segregated. It's not, you know, hard to understand. There are different signs for where different people can go. There are different license plates forbidding different people from going different places. Now, what the authorities will tell you is that this is a, a security measure. But if you go back to the history of Jim Crow in this country, they would tell you the exact same thing. People always have good reasons besides, you know, I hate you and I don't like you to justify their right for imposing an oppressive regime on other people. It's never quite that simple. And so that was the first thing. But, but the second thing I think that you're referring to is, you know, I, I you know, this is like really personal for me um, because I came up in a, in, a, in a time and in a place where um, I did not really understand the ethic of nonviolence. And by ethic, I mean the notion that violence itself is corrupting, that it corrupts the soul. And I didn't quite understand that. If, 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 if I'm truly honest with you, um, as much as I saw my relationship with the Palestinian people there, and as much as it was clear 
what the relationship was. It was at the same time clear that there was some sort of relationship with the Israeli people too. And it wasn't one that I particularly enjoyed because I understood the rage that comes when you have a history of oppression. I understood the anger. I understood the sense of humiliation that comes when people subject you to uh, uh, just manifold oppression, to genocide, and people uh, uh, look away from that. I come from the descendants of 250 years of enslavement. I come from a people who uh, sexual violence and rape is marked in our very bones and in our DNA. And I understand how when you feel that the world has turned its back on you, how you can then turn your back on the ethics of the world. But I also understood how corrupting that can be. So that's the way that ta Coates put it on Democracy Now! I found his remarks interesting, not only because we are both black men and I can kind of relate to what he's putting out there, but also just because of the openness with which he explained why he thinks what he thinks. He told a story about it. Stories are way more useful than arguments. And I think what I cannot get from a protest is your story. I can, however, if I'm part of a university communi community, facilitate space for you to give that story. The story is healing. That's literally what it is to bear witness, right? Here's what happened to me. Here's what happened to my people. Here's what happened and here's how I dealt with it, felt about it, reconciled it. It's personal. A protest is massive and it is impossible to get your personal story. But I think universities can facilitate that. If they don't, I mean, what's the, what's the point of being there? What's the point of having these spaces if they're not for deliberative dialectical discussions, I mean, and debates? That's the whole point of being there. And the idea that universities are not the first place we run for this is an opportunity for them to really step up. Now, again, I don't know what's happening on every UC campus, right? They may be doing this. Your local university may be doing this. And if they are, that's awesome. I'd love to hear about it. So I can talk to them and be like, hey, what did you do? How did it work? What did you learn? What can other institutions learn from your successes or mistakes or, or high points or low points? That's awesome. My worry is just that we are foreclosing on this possibility. And we shouldn't yet. We shouldn't give it up. I mean, I have really struggled to put these episodes together lately because I don't know what to say about the conflict, right? I am not a, an expert on the Middle East. That much is probably apparent now, but I do know how to talk about difficult things. That's my expertise, my expertise always has been. And speaking as an expert communicator and as just a person with eyes, ears, and a brain, this is not working. Everyone's mad, everyone. So maybe we just have to deal with the anger first. Once you let someone vent and acknowledge like, I got you, I hear you. Thank you for telling me that. I know that was hard to say and I know it hurts to even think about. I appreciate you just being willing to lay that on me in as honest a way as you can. So thank you, thank you. That's like magic. And it has another powerful effect too. I have found that when you're in you know, a crowd of five to 10 angry people, let's say, or even a larger group, when they hear someone express what they're thinking and they, yeah, right, yeah, 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 they, they, they 
come out with the amen corner. Yes, right. We feel the same way. Other people are not going to say the same thing, right? That point is much easier to dissipate. You're not going to come back and keep saying the same thing because the crowd realizes, oh, you're listening. And so someone with something else to add will add that. Now, at a certain point, if there have been so many, let's say, you know, Hurricane Katrina, right? You'll have a a, 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 a a group of people who rush reporters and say, this is what's happening. No one's paying attention. No one's paying attention. And reporters will go block to block, house to house and tell the story. That kind of thing may end up needing to happen on the ground with war zones, not just here, but anywhere. But when we're stateside and we are talking about our view on the thing, the key is that that view is heard and validated. I have found that when people know you're listening, they don't need to say the same thing over and over. That almost adds to the dissipation. It eases the tension faster because one person's validated comment can soothe the nerves of everyone around them who notices the validation. It's amplifying. It works very, very well. And I'm kind of stunned at how well it does work. I'm kind of stunned at how effectively it works when someone just just takes the time to pay attention. I mean, it's a beautiful thing, but it's hard to do. And even as someone who does this with a degree of expertise, it's hard for me to do sometimes. I will say this, lest it go unsaid. If your support for Palestinians metastasizes into anti-Semitism, you disqualify yourself from being a trustworthy voice in this discussion. That's my view. I do not believe you can argue for the humanity of the Palestinian people and simultaneously argue the dehumanization of Israelis. That is a non-starter because it kind of shows that you're not serious about humanity. You're serious about victory. And if that's what you want, say it. Say it with your chest so we know what we're dealing with. But I think the veiled anti-Semitism, or not at all veiled anti-Semitism, that has emerged is disqualifying to the conversation. And I think it is okay for people to say, listen, I want to hear what you have to say, but you're not going to bring them down to lift yourself up. I don't want to hear that. But that's the way I feel. Well, then, okay. Well, then we know. Now we know. I'm not the right person to hear this, but perhaps there's someone else who's a better fit for this conversation. But that's a boundary for me, and that's not a boundary I'm willing to move. I cannot get with anti-Semitism as a condition of talking about the Palestinian cause. Nothing Ta-Nehisi Coates said in that clip is anti-Semitic. He is talking about the political environment there, which he described as segregation. But he never once said anything about the Israeli people's humanity or their worth as human beings at all. Those two things do not need to go hand in hand. Anti-Semitism is a non-starter for me. Maybe you feel differently. Maybe you feel the same way. But for me, miss me with it. Just, I, I'm not hearing it. I'm not hearing it. I think there's an opportunity for people like you and me who want to see these discussions go to smarter places to get involved and not necessarily by just speaking your mind. I'm not saying that you should not speak your mind, but maybe if you're part of a university community, 
maybe you can get in touch with your administration, regents, whatever the governing board, the board of governors, whatever the the authority is that runs your university system and say, hey, I'm an alumnus, I'm an alumna of, you know, such and such university. I'm sure there are students on campus right now who are very emotional, who are sick with grief over what's happening in the Middle East right now. I just want to encourage you to facilitate conversations with faculty members and administrators who are skilled in moderating civil discussions and in helping navigate complex emotional issues. These students need to be heard, but we as a university also need to teach them carefully how to navigate these things. Maybe that's something you can do. If you don't know what to say, maybe you know how to say it. There might be another option for you. And maybe you just say that to them. Look, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know anyone who has the answers but you have faculty who can ask the right questions. You don't have to have the answers. You do need the right questions. And perhaps you just need faculty members who can say, for instance, how are you? Are you okay? And just be present for the answer. No, I'm not okay because what's going on over there, it's inhumane and nobody wants to listen. I can't believe. Okay, well, I'm, I'm here, I'm here. What's what's on your mind? What What's... What's top of mind for you right now? I can't believe that the way that this is, do you know someone over there? Well, no, but I just it just hurts so much. What hurts? Be specific. I, I don't know that I can help, but I can listen. What hurts? Now that's really hard to do, to be present with someone in that kind of pain. But there are people at universities who love those kids. I, when I taught at UC Berkeley, I taught journalism there. Loved those students. I would have moved mountains for them. It was amazing how much affinity and how much just meaning I got from helping them grow. And if they had come to me and said, can you help me with this? I'd have been like, yes. Name the time, name the place. I will drop all my plans. There are plenty of people at universities who feel the same way. And that's why they built careers in higher education who would love to just bear witness to it. What are we going to do? Well, I don't know what we're going to do, but the first step is for me to be here with you right now and to make sure that you are okay. And once I know that you're okay, then we can figure out what to do. That's step one. That's something universal that the entire university can be part of. Last thing I'll say about this, and then I'll, I'll let you go. I do think that the starting point for the conversation needs to be an area that everyone can agree on because that will help the different sides find their way back to one another if things get hairy. I don't think that should be something like war is bad. You know, I'm not a warmonger, but I can imagine if someone had said that after say 9-11, when we were like, oh, we have to get the people who did this to us, that could be a non-starter, even if it's what you believe. That shuts down the conversation. And remember, communication is strategic. It's not just about what you want to say. It's about what you want back from what you say. Will saying that get you what you want? Mm, probably not. It, where people's emotions are, that may not be effective. It may be valid as an argument. I just don't know that it's effective. What might be more effective is something like, we believe that education thrives in a world at peace. And we are training our students to be peacemakers something like that. We believe that universities and educators thrive in a world at peace. Yeah, 
I can't think of any student who wants people to be at war. They just want, they want victory. They want the outcome. They want this or that for their particular side. But I think it's okay to say we thrive in a world at peace and let that be the common foundation. And if you don't believe that, then I don't know why you're at the university in the first place. But some kind of common bond to lay a foundation, that's the key. Maybe that, if I can go back to UC's statement, maybe that is the error that they made. And again, it doesn't mean that what they said is false. Hearts are heavy. Maybe the error that they made was right here in this pronouncement. And again, it doesn't mean that they're wrong. This absolutely was terrorism, right? I mean, the things that have been done to elderly people and, and babies in this conflict, that's for political purposes, that's the definition of terrorism. And again, it doesn't mean it's not true, but has it been effective? Is what you said muddying the conversation or is it clarifying the conversation? This is why universities hate writing these statements. I think the key is to make sure that everything in the statement is as universal as possible. Maybe this is something they would have done differently in the past, in retrospect, even though it was obviously an act of terrorism. Maybe it's not the first thing you say in the first statement, but you get to that point. Maybe you don't prescribe the interpretation, but you refocus on your mission as a university. Our mission is to educate students and equip them to be effective citizens in service to the world. And we are going to redouble our efforts in light of the intense emotions and pain that we know our students are feeling from this situation. Universities thrive in a world at peace. We are training a generation of peacemakers and, and the next generation of leaders. And we hope that we can be part of the process of moving us all forward toward a more peaceful world. We are here to support students. They did note that they do offer services for you know, the University of California community, including counseling centers. So they did do some of that, but maybe that was part of the learning from this. Maybe that's the lesson in this, is that start with something universal and start with what you can do to help. Maybe you don't need to tell me what you think. Just tell me what you can do and do it. We'll save the arguments for another day. That's what I think. What do you think? Am I off base? Am I crazy? Am I missing something? Have I got this completely wrong? Is there a situation you've been in like this that you can relate to me that would allow for all of us to deal with this better? And again, your views on Israel and Palestine are your business, but communication is my bailiwick. And I found that you got to be really strategic in how you talk about tough things with people because they don't always want to hear it. And even if you say something smart, they may not be down for the cause. They just may not be with you for that at all. And I don't want students. I don't want young adults. I don't want 20-somethings, especially if you're watching right now. Hey, I don't want 20-somethings to go through life feeling powerless and feeling like it's just burning down around them. So, you know, what's the point of even trying to work together? I, I would hate that. I think we owe it to them to model for them a better way forward. And I think some people, especially the people in my life over the years, feel like 
but I'm not saying anything. I'm not being helpful. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be useful. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to give you good advice. I, I didn't ask for your advice. Your advice will be helpful, but not until I've given you permission to give it. How do I know you're advising me on something that is what I want advice on unless I know you actually heard what I said? It's more effective if you just go, I got it. So it sounds like, if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like X, Y, and Z. Yeah, that's right. Got it. Okay. Here's the trick. Once you do that, your next response is not, let me tell you what I think. Your next response is, what else should I know? Keep going. Let him get it all out. It's amazing. And again, I think people are like, man, I don't want to hear all of that. I don't want it, all of it. You want me to listen to all of it? They're not going to tell you all of it. That's the trick. They just want to know that they matter to you and that their validation matters to you. And once they feel validated, they'll calm down. I've had plenty of conversations with people who were like, Wah! in the beginning, just, oh, God, God damn it, I just can't so, can't take it anymore. And when I start listening, I'll go, okay, I'm, I'm listening. What's on your mind? Why did I, I, these people, you don't understand it. <sighs> I really appreciate you listening. Thanks so very much. Yeah, no problem. What else? Go on. I'm listening. <sighs> I'm okay. I'm okay. No, no, you're not okay. You're clearly mad. Well, you know, that was really it. That was really all I needed to say. Thank you for listening. And then I have to prod them to get more information. They're only going to tell me what's burning a hole in the front of their brain when they're mad. And then once we deal with that, then I have to dig. Then they get reticent. It's weird the way that that works, but it has happened to me over and over and over again. So this presumption that the angry person has three hours of stuff to say to you I, that does not my, match my experience at all. My experience has been very different. And I've talked to people across the country from many different walks of life. That has not been my experience. They're usually just kind of on fire about the thing they're on fire about. And then once you put that fire out, you kind of have to work to get them to tell you the rest, partly because they may be so emotional, they don't have those thoughts organized for themselves. All they have is the torrent of emotion. And then your responsibility, well, not your responsibility, your opportunity, let's say, is to help them make sense of their own thoughts that had been occluded by all of this strong feeling. And that builds a bond. Powerful the way that can work if you're willing to bear with someone through that. Very hard to do. Oh, sidebar, before I forget. Doing this is extremely draining. You have to have very good self-care built in before you do any of this. Don't try to do this and presume you can just fly by the seat of your pants and make it work. It is too hard to do day in and day out. 1A burned me out sometimes because some days it was enormously difficult work. Two hours a day, five days, well, we're coming up on two hours now, but two hours a day, five days a week to the nation about the biggest stories of the day during the Trump administration when everybody was mad all the time burned me out. And it will burn you out too if you don't have extremely good self-care to just back away. 
Speaking of which, you know what? It's Friday. Can we all just take a deep breath together? This is, I know this may sound very woo-woo, but just like do yourself a favor. Here's what we're gonna do. You're gonna take a deep breath in for a five count, hold it for five, and then release it. If you have asthma or some other kind of respiratory pulmonary condition, skip this. Don't do this if this is a problem for you. But I know I've been talking for two hours. I could use a breath. Ready? In for five, hold for five, and then release for five. Ready? And I will I will count right here. Ready? In. Hold. Out. <sighs> Some of you are like, I haven't breathed for three days. Thanks so very much. It's weird what happens when you finally like do that and take a minute for yourself. Just like a good old five, five and five will get you through the day, man. Just take 15 seconds to breathe. It's incredible. It's incredible how effective it is. Five, five and five. It will, it'll work. You want try it for 90 days and your money back if you don't like it. Let me go through some of your comments. Billy on Facebook who wrote, I used to listen to 1A religiously, randomly found you today. Hi, Billy. Billy Wayne. Is it Billy Wayne or Billy? It's good to good to see you. However, I, I just don't want to malign your first name, but it is good to see you. Good to have you here. Billy writes, great tips on diffusing anger. I am guilty of just walking away in the middle of heated discussions. Hashtag ripcord. You know what, Billy? Don't feel guilty about that. I'm sure, I'm sure a bunch of the other folks watching this stream right now would say to you, hey, depending on some conversation, I might walk away too. You know, you do not have to be abused by someone who you're in conversation with. You do not owe anybody your face as a punching bag or for target practice. That is uh, not, not cool. I would not advocate that. And I think that one of the most respectful things you can do is set boundaries for yourself. I think it's important to be able to just kind of wind it down and be like, okay, um, I don't think this is helpful, but I appreciate you talking to me. Maybe we can pick this up another time. That's totally cool. That's totally cool. I have not been able to do that all the time because of what I do, but even on the radio, you know, we could cut somebody off if they were getting weird. I could always move on to another guest or another part of the conversation or read a different audience comment and kind of signal to the engineer that we were going to move on to something else if we needed to. That's fine. That's totally, totally fine. That's it for now, but remember to follow the show in your podcast app. You can also be a part of the show by joining the chat in my live streams. I'm on Twitch at Nightlight Show, on YouTube at The Nightlight Show, and on Facebook at Joshua Listening. Wherever you watch or listen, please follow me and leave a review. Also, I'd love to hear from you anytime. Email me, joshua at nightlightshow.com. And please consider supporting this show as a paid subscriber online at nightlightshow.com. So until we meet again, I'm Joshua Johnson. Thank you for making time for me. And please keep on shining because someone somewhere needs your light right now.